bless you. Hey, right before I preach, I'm going to go to God in prayer. Uh, this morning at 7 a.m., several students from Greenwood High School left to go to Nicaragua. Two of our very own, James Henry Christian and Callie Harmon, left with that group. Uh, they're traveling to Dallas. From Dallas, they'll fly down to Nicaragua to spend a week ministering to people in that country. So would you join me right now? Let's pray for our missionaries as they have embarked on this trip. And let's ask God to give us a good service this morning. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for this great day. Thank you for the men who are here. Uh, thank you for the men of God of this church. I pray a blessing on their lives today. Lord, would you speak to us through the word this morning? And I pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us to be the people that you've called us to be and to always be doing your will your way. I pray for uh, James Christian and Callie Harmon uh, and the other 25 from Greenwood who are on this mission strip. Uh, Lord, give them safety. I pray a hedge of protection around them. And I pray that you would use them this week in Nicaragua as they not only work physically with their hands, but they also share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, let your presence be felt in this service and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Of all the good and important things that we can do as a man, a husband, and a father... The most important thing that we do is to live for God and to do His good, acceptable, and perfect will. You know, when a young man is just starting out, he has high hopes and dreams and great aspirations. Uh, he wants to rope a cloud and ride it till the sunset. And uh, all the dreams of the future are in front of him. Uh, I mean, I was that way. I can remember sitting at, at Hillsdale College, and instead of listening to my professor, I'd look out the window at I-35, and I would dream about two things. I would dream about this pretty little blonde-headed girl named Angie Archer. Isn't that sweet? And I would also dream about the things that God had put in my heart that I was to do in his kingdom and for his work. And so I had all of these great dreams. But then you know what happens, guys. Real life sets in. And even though marriage is great, sometimes it can be kind of rocky. Well, maybe for y'all. It hasn't been for us. But, uh, and then kids come along and they just complicate things even more and, and real life is tough. And, and then we go in through this phase that psychologists call dream deflation. You know, you have all these great dreams when you're young and then real life sets in and the dreams are deflated and reality is some way, somewhere down here. It's like I'm talking to a wall back there. You know what I'm talking about. You've, you've faced it. You know it's real. Well, you know what? I think God put those dreams in, in your heart for a reason. And you need to keep achieving those dreams and going after those things and being the man that God has called you to be and the woman that God wants you to be. And, and you know what? Even though things change and there may be dream deflation, you've got to realize God has also given you something else. He's given me wisdom. You know? And even though I still have those great dreams, I'm seeing life through different eyes now. And really, at this stage in my life, you know what I really want to do? Finish well. Yep. Finish well. Finish strong. Still achieve the dreams, but 
Finish life strong. So no matter what season of life you're in today, gentlemen, the most important thing is that you honor God with your life and that you live God's will. And that's my message for the men this morning. Ladies, please listen along because it's applicable to you as well. But today we're going to talk about doing the will of God. That is found in 1 John chapter 2. I think this passage was written for the men of our church, and God put it on my heart this week to share with you. It is a familiar passage. In fact, the last several weeks I've been preaching on passages of Scripture that are very familiar but mean a great deal to me. And 1 John chapter 2 certainly does that. So let me read these three verses, and then we're going to look at living the will of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what John said. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And if you want to live for eternity, here's the answer. You need to do and live the will of God. So men, we're going to exegete this passage, look at it, and then make personal application. First of all, what God is giving us here is one simple commandment that we need to follow. And this commandment needs to be inscribed on the interior of our hearts. It is a five-word injunction, and here it is. Are you ready? Men, here it is. Here's what God tells us. Do not love the world. That is the commandment He's given us. Do not love the world. Soon after a person becomes a believer, he or she suddenly realizes that being a Christian is not a bed of roses. If you thought life was tough before you got saved, you realize life is really tough after you get saved. And I'll explain that in a moment. It really is quite a battle. The Christian life is a struggle against some formidable enemies. A child of God has three great foes. First of all, there is an external enemy, and that is the world in which we live in. Secondly, there is an internal enemy, and that is your own flesh or your own human nature. And then thirdly, there is an infernal enemy. He blows smoke. (laughs) The Bible describes him as an angry red dragon. He is, of course, the devil, and he is out to destroy you. And so when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, man, you've declared war on the devil. And he's coming after you with everything you have. John warns us in this passage about, however, the external enemy that we face, and that is the world. Notice what he said in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is saying that it is impossible for us as human beings to love two exact opposites at the same time. You can't do it. 
You can't love both the world and the Father because they are opposite to one another. Jesus put it like this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot, and that is emphatic, you cannot, Jesus said, serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and the world. You can't say that you love one and then dabble in the other. It doesn't work that way. Now, let's talk about worldliness just for a second. I I haven't heard that term in a long time. Have you? Worldliness. I think worldliness is one of the problems of the modern-day church. Oh, I might be meddling now, but it's the truth. It's not only a problem of the modern-day church. It was the problem of the church when I was a kid. And even before that. Worldliness is a problem for the church. It plagues our churches and keeps them from having the power of God. It robs us of our spiritual effectiveness and it ruins our witness for the Lord. To speak of a worldly Christian really is somewhat of a misnomer. (laughs) It's oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. I agree with Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, who is correct when he said, it makes no more sense to talk about a worldly Christian than it does to talk about a heavenly devil. Come on, people. And I am convinced that many of those we call worldly Christians are not actually Christians at all. Wow. Let me put it like this. If I see a bird that looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and waddles like a duck, then I get the idea that such a bird is a duck. If I see a person who acts like the world and lives like the world and loves the world and is consumed with the world and is a part of this world, then I am driven to certain inevitable conclusions about that person. And from the Word of God, we can understand... What worldliness is. Many Christians, I believe, who are worldly-minded would not be worldly-minded if they really knew what this world was all about. And if they knew what this world was doing to them, and if they knew how this world operates and where this world is going, we would really want no part of this world system. So what what does John mean here when he says... Love not the world. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he does not mean the world of nature. He's not talking about flowers and trees, mountains and seas. (laughs) It's not at all what he's talking about. Nor does John mean the world of humanity. He's not talking about people. For example, in John 3.16, this same John used the same word when he wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In that passage, John tells us that God loves the people of the world. God loves the whosoevers of the world. God loves people. But here in John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, it's not referring to the peoples of the world. It's referring to the character of this world, to this world's philosophy and this world's values. 
So when the Bible tells us, love not the world, it's talking about an arrangement of things. It's talking about how this world operates. It's talking about the value system of our world that is diametrically opposed to God. Did you realize that it is this world's system, this world's value that put Jesus on the cross? In fact, Jesus said this in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I guess that's a pretty good gauge to see where you are spiritually. Does the world accept you and love you or does the world hate you? You know, sometimes we as Christians and a church kind of get into a, a little tizzy about the world system and what the world is doing and the world's values and how anti-God everybody is. That shouldn't surprise us one bit. I mean, that's the world. And if you are persecuted for your sake, for Christ's sake, the Lord said, you know what, count yourself worthy. Because the world is not our friend. The world is no friend to God's children. It's not a friend to help us in our relationship with God. This world is our enemy. This world is our antagonist. The world system wants to keep us away from God. And this world system wants to rob you of the blessings that God has for you. Worldliness, therefore, is anything that keeps you from loving God the way you ought to love God. And it's anything that keeps you from doing the will of God like you ought to do the will of God. Worldliness is anything that comes between you and God and keeps you from living the Christian life. So, if there is anything in your life right now about which you have a question, if there is anything you are doing right now that you really don't feel at ease with before God, then you know what you need to do? You need to quit doing it. You just need to stop doing it. In fact, I think a pretty good axiom for the child of God is this. If I am in doubt about whether or not this is good for me to do, if I am in doubt, then don't. If you're in doubt, just don't do it. And John actually goes on to define his usage of this word. He describes three dangers or three traps that we need to avoid. And so, guys, let me put it to you like this. Every single day, the devil comes to your house, and out in your yard, he's setting these traps to snare you. He sets them up in your garage. I mean, he even goes inside your house, and he sets these traps and these snares for you. They're on the road to work for you. They're at your job. They're everywhere you go. The devil knows you. He knows what tempts you. And he set traps specifically for you. And John is saying in a broad sense, here are three categories of traps and dangers that we need to avoid as people of God. It's found in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are not of God. These things are of the world. So what are these three dangers? Right there they are. The first danger is the lust of the flesh. And that is a pretty good translation of the Greek there. 
In the original, John uses a three-word phrase, and the first word means a strong impulse or desire. It has to do with hunger and appetites. It has to do with cravings. You're craving something. The middle word is a definite article meaning of thee. And then the last word is the word flesh, your, your human body that you're held captive in, this fleshly body. So literally, this phrase says, the desires or the appetites or the cravings or the drives of your flesh. The devil is using those things to tempt you and to cause you to sin. So avoid that danger. Avoid that trap, the cravings of the flesh. What John is warning us about here are any physical desires that become a dominant or driving force in our life. So that our actions are dictated by our appetites and our cravings instead of the Lord. In other words, we are addicted to something or we are craving something. And that craving is dictating the way we live instead of God dictating the way we live. And guys, I mean, I could open a Pandora's box this morning of these specific things that fall under the category of the lust of the flesh. I mean, where do you start? I used this illustration in the first service. I guess I'll go with it again. Nobody threw a rock at me. Just a, just a little illustration here of, of something that this could describe, and that is a smoking. Smoking cigarettes. Is it right or wrong? I'm not going to answer that question this morning, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you a little experience I had, okay? When I was a little bitty boy growing up in Midland, Texas, my pastor was E.E. E. Zellers. He was a preaching machine, man. I mean, the guy could preach. He could preach you under the pew, and uh, he preached for two hours every Sunday morning, two stinking hours. And let me tell you, you did not get up and walk out because if you got up and started walking out, he would call you down. Literally, wouldn't he, mom and dad? He'd call your name down. Jerry Harmon, what are you doing? Get back in your chair right now. I mean, he would do that. He was, it, it, was, it was absolutely crazy. But he was a preaching machine. I was saved under his ministry. But here's something about E.E. Zellers. He smoked. He smoked like a freight train. It smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> Guy was a chain smoker, man. And, and he would finish his sermon after two hours, and he would beeline it for the back door, not to shake people's hand as they were walking out, before he hit the door, he already had that cigarette in his mouth. And when he walked across the threshold, he was lighting his match. And then would walk out and he'd be shaking our hands smoking. Man, I was raised with that. Two preachers later, I was a little older, two preachers later, we got this other guy come in. He told us smoking was a sin. He preached and told us if we smoked, we were going to hell. Or at least we smelt like it. <laughs> He'd call them cancer sticks. See, those cancer sticks are going to kill you. They're going to send you to hell. I mean, man, it scared me to death. I determined right then and there I was never going to smoke, you know. But here I am, a little kid from six years old to nine years old, and I've got this conflicting thing going on in my head. Is it okay to smoke? Is it a sin to smoke? 
Now, I'm not going to answer that question for you today. <laughs> You're dying for me to do it. I'm not going to, but here's what I do know about smoking or anything else. You can become addicted to it. Your flesh can crave after it. You can desire it so much that it becomes the dominant driving force in your life and everything else centers around that one craving that you have. It has enslaved you. It's not just, it could be anything, man. It is a lust of the flesh. So, and, and before you start judging other people, you look at your own life. What is it you are craving and lusting after? John says, here's one example, the lust of the flesh. Second danger to the soul is the lust of the eyes. These are temptations that come to us through the gateway of our eyesight. And remember, this is Father's Day, and so I'm talking to the guys. Ladies, you can listen too, but this is for you guys. Here, guys, I, know, I don't know how it is for a lady. I'm not one. I don't want to be one. Okay? But I know how it is for us guys. These, these things right here, they are the gateway to our mind that then leads to our heart. And so whatever I let these two things focus in on and see directly goes into my mind. And here's what I figured out, guys. I can look at something and it not affect me immediately right then. But seven months later, that thing that I've looked at got stuck in my head and it made its way down to my heart. And now I've got a big problem. And that's the way it works for men. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And guys, let me tell you, you've got to protect what you look at and what you see. This lust of the eyes includes anything from pornography to materialism. So be careful what you allow through your eyes to your mind that eventually goes into your heart. Again, I'm talking to guys, but let me just tell you a verse that I adopted when I was a young man. Job 31.1 became one of my life verses. Here's what Job said in 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust on a young woman. That's a great verse. It's a great verse. Because here's what happens. You say, but pornography doesn't bother me. Look, looking at other women doesn't bother me. You want to bet? It, it does bother you. Because what you allow through your eyes gets stuck in your head and eventually it makes its way down to your heart. And then you got a problem. So men, you, you've got to understand this is a temptation. This is a danger. It's a snare that the devil is setting out before us. So you need to watch out. There are certain things you don't need to be looking at. There are certain movies you don't need to be watching. There are even certain TV shows you don't need to have on. Certain books you don't need to read. Certain magazines that you don't need to read. You, you need to have filters on your computer. So you don't see those things. The third danger is the pride of life. This is the boasting of who we are or what we can accomplish. Do, do, let me remind you of the very first sin ever committed. Didn't happen here on earth. The very first sin happened in heaven. The devil committed it. And it was the sin of pride. His heart was filled with pride. He wanted to assume the throne of God. And so this is a tool of the devil. He knows how it works. And so it says here, avoid the pride of life. 
Sometimes we begin, even as believers, boasting in what we can do and what we can accomplish, that we don't need the help of anyone, especially God, and we become prideful. You know what happens when we get prideful? You better hang on because you're about to tumble down. There's going to be a fall. Recently, a polling firm did a survey of school kids asking them, what, what are some of the best things in life? What, what do you desire? What do you want? And the very first item on the list, the top of the lift, list from these school grade kids was to be a celebrity. That's what they wanted. Number one thing, to be a celebrity. The second thing was good looks. And then the third was being rich. The one word answer, God did make the list, but it was last. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is the pride of life. And it has seeped into our world and our culture so much that our little kids grow up thinking about this. And if you don't believe me, just look at the magazines and the tabloids on the checkout stands at your grocery store. Everything in them is about pleasure and possessions and sex and money and fame and good looks and being a celebrity. Those are the controlling aspects of our society today, and we have internalized those values. And the devil is constantly trying to lure us away from doing the will of God with these three temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, in this passage, the Lord gives us two warnings, two things he wants us to remember. And I'll say these very quickly. Remember this. These traps are not from God. Okay? Look at the verse again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is not of the Father, it's of the world. Our world is a system of values and goals that excludes the God who created us and loves us and knows what is best for us and wants to give us the true joys of abundant living. The world doesn't want that from us. You know what the world wants to do? It wants to suck life out of us. God wants to infuse life into us. So these temptations, these allurements, they're not from God. Number two, these allurements are only temporary. Verse 17 says, the world is passing away. The, the things of this, that this world offers are, are passing. They don't last, nor do they satisfy the longings of your soul. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. Another biblical application to this is, you know, Jesus talking about the things that last. Gold, silver, precious stones, those last. Wood, hay, and straw, they don't last. And let me tell you, that's what the world is offering you. Wood, hay, straw. It burns up. Another application is how you build your house. You can either build it on the firm foundation, which is God, or you can build it on the sand. And the world offers sand. Hmm. This passage ends by giving us one way to live. How is that? Well, the last verse, 17, says, But he who does the will of God abides forever. So how do we live? You do the will of God. You might, you might say, well, how do I do that, preacher? 
Well, as I close this sermon today, I'm going to give you a simple fourfold strategy for doing the will of God in your life. And you need to listen fast because I'm going to talk quick. <laughs> Do these four things and you can live the will of God. Number one, guys, I'm talking to you. Number one, you've got to take a stand. You've got to dig your heels in. You've got to determine once and for all that you're going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be like Joshua and David and the three Hebrew children. You're going to resolve in your own heart today that no matter what, I am going to follow God and realize that the key to all the other good decisions in life is based on this one decision. This is the most foundational decision that I make. And I'm going to dig my feet in. I'm going to take my stand. And I'm going to live for God. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks or what the world does. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to be like Joshua who said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So can I, I'm talking to guys right now. Can I just... Quit being a wimp. Okay? Is that plain enough? Quit being a wimp. Be a man. Act like a man. As for me and my house, we're serving God. Kids might like it. The wife might get a little sassy. We needed a laugh, and you didn't laugh. But you're going to take a stand. Okay? Number two, after you take a stand, you need to put it on your carpenter belt and you need to build a fence. Because once you take a stand for Christ and you begin living as this passage tells us to live, that means that you're going to have to erect some fences in your life to separate you from the world and the temptations that are in the world. The Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. So says the Lord. So quit looking like the world and acting like the world and talking like the world. Build a fence around your life and your family to protect you from all of that nonsense. We've got to erect these boundaries between ourselves and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And guys, I'm talking real practical right now. We need to build some fences in various areas of our behavior. It might involve where we go for entertainment or the kind of movies that we watch, or what sort of people we're with, or what we allow or don't allow on our television or computer screens. These are issues of personal moral purity that we have to think through for ourselves. And then for our life and our family, we build these fences. And we don't let the junk in. Say this to our teenagers who are here today. You adults need to hear this again too. But you know what, teenagers, you need to do this before you go on your very first date. When you're thinking clear, <laughs> you make the decision, okay? This is, this is, I'm not going past, this is the boundary for my life. It, let me tell you, can I, <laughs> even for you adults who are married, you need to build some boundaries in your own life. Dealing with the opposite sex. I used to preach a whole lot of youth camps when I was young and had hair. 
And I tell those kids all the time, hey, hey, the, the, the time to decide whether or not you're going to stay morally pure is not on Friday night at midnight in the backseat of a car on an abandoned road. If you're trying to make up your mind then, if you're going to stay sexually pure, you're, you've, you're going to make the wrong decision 10 out of 10 times. You need to build that boundary before. And all of you people do. Third, you need to find a prayer closet. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told us to go into a quiet room, close the door behind us so that we could nourish our souls in the presence of God through prayer. And if you're going to remain pure in an unholy world, you are going to have to perform some spiritual maintenance on your soul. You need to shut yourself in a room every day with some peace and quiet and a little bit of time for personal renewal and replenishment. You've got to feed your faith. How many of y'all have a swimming pool in your backyard? Don't ever build one. I just say, find a friend who has a pool. Okay? Don't ever build one. They are, they are a money pit. I'm thinking about doing the same thing Ken Franklin did to his, fill it in with dirt, you know? Every year it's something else. And uh, this year my problem is uh, I'm losing an inch of water every day in my pool. And we can't figure out where it's going. There's no, we just can't, we don't, it's just disappearing. An inch of water. And that is a lot of water. So every day I'm adding water to this stupid pool. It's like a money pit. It's a whole, it just, the only good thing about this is that I've realized that's the way my life is. This world sucks the life out of me every day. And I'm not just losing an inch. I'm losing more than an inch. Sometimes I'm losing feet in my life. And so every day I've got to get into my prayer closet. And I have to be renewed and replenished and refilled with the good stuff. Because the world is taking it out of me. And then finally... You know, let, let, me, let me just back up about the prayer before I go to finally. Because I just thought of this. If you're, if you're a father, in your prayer closet, you need to be interceding for your wife and your kids. Can I tell you that? Instead of fighting with them, start praying for them. Let me, let me ask you, who, who, else, who else is going to pray for your family? And guys, let me tell you, they're your responsibility. I know 10, 15 years ago, I got this crazy thought in my head. And I know where it came from. It came from the devil. This thought is, you're being real selfish in your prayer time, Will. Praying for your family like you're praying for your family. You're spending too much time doing that. You're being selfish. Okay, and That's weird, isn't it? But the devil was telling me that. And then, then I came to the conclusion, no, no, if I don't pray for them, who's going to pray for them? They're my responsibility. So guys, let me tell you, if you really love your wife, you're going to pray for your wife. You're going to intercede for her. If you love your kids, you're going to pray a hedge of protection around them and lift them up to God. I, I tell you this all the time, and you're sick of me saying it, but you need to hear this lesson. I learned it from Pastor Ronnie Floyd at the Cross Church in, in Northwest Arkansas. He said that for years he has prayed for his family and he has prayed the armor of God on them daily. And so I've done that for years. Does it do any good? Well, I think it does. God is protecting my family 
and I'm going to keep doing it every day. I call them by name and I say, Lord, I pray the armor of God on my family, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. Lord, help us to walk worthy of the vocation we have been called. And God, protect my family today. And daddies, I challenge you to pray that prayer for your family. Then finally, we make a change. You see, when we take a stand for Christ and build fences in our life and learn to spend time with Christ in prayer, the outcropping is this. We realize there are things that need to change in our life. And so we change them. Maybe it's we need to stop doing some things we've been doing, so we make the change and we stop doing them. Maybe the change is to start doing some things we haven't been doing, and so we start doing them. Maybe changes need to happen in our attitudes and in our relationships, and so we make those changes. It could be that changes need to occur in our home or in our heart. And so as the Lord convicts us of this and speaks to us of this, we make the change. And I don't know how else to say it. If you want to do the will of God, you're going to have to conform to His will. You can't do His will your way. It's got to be His will His way. And so you make the changes. So guys, Father's Day 2017, take a stand, build a fence, find a prayer closet, and make some changes starting today.